love that now there we go very good we can continue our series with the bible says about if we look go through genesis or part of genesis that is and we're going to you know eventually want to turn to genesis chapter 9 but i want to begin uh, with uh, some quotes from an article written in 2018 um, by tiffany watt smith she wrote this, says, Recently I went to my corner shop to buy some milk. I found myself pausing by the celebrity gossip magazines. Ever do that? My first instinct, just in case someone was listening in on my thoughts, was to think, ugh, who buys these terrible magazines? The people at Bible Chapel do, apparently. So, <laughs> then I picked one up. And the favorite story was an interview with a pop star, or perhaps a model, who lived in a luxury, luxury mansion. I'm the sort of person who usually curdles with envy on hearing about someone's luxury mansion, but this was different. The story was about how she was lonely, tragically lonely, following a breakup. I felt a warm sensation working its way across my chest. I felt lucky. No, that's not it. I felt smug. Sometimes I feel good when others feel bad. Well, Tiffany Watt Smith is not alone. The Japanese have a saying describing this experience. The misfortune, misfortune of others tastes like honey. The French speak of, I don't even know how to say this. How do you say Joe? J-O-I-E. Dois malign. Okay, dois malign. It's a diabolical delight in other people's sufferings. In Danish, it's scatterfrid. In Hebrew, I'm not even going to try and pronounce this one. In Mandarin, forget it. There's a word for it. In Russian, zordatsvo. And for the Melanesians who live on the remote Nissan Atoll in Papua New Guinea, it's Banbanum. Now, two millennia ago, the Romans spoke of malevolentia. Malevolence, sound good? Earlier still, the Greeks described epikarikikaya. Literally, epi over caro, rejoice, kakia, disgrace. Rejoice over disgrace. But the most famous word for Delighting in the misfortune of others comes from, of all people, of course, the Germans. Schadenfreude, Schadenfreude, excuse me, Schadenfreude. You recognize that? Am I saying it right, Lydia? You know what it is? You heard it before? It, Schaden, Schaden meaning damage or harm, and Freud meaning joy or pleasure. So it's damage, joy. Uh, the temptation to rejoice in the failings of others is everywhere. There is the glee of incompetence, not just at skiers face planting in the snow, although I like that because it makes me feel good about myself. OK. 
okay, uh, but at screw-ups of implausible magnitude. Uh, do you know, remember this? NASA lost a $125 million Mars orbiter because half the team was using imperial measurements, the other half was using metric measurements. Then there is the self-righteous satisfaction when hypocrites are exposed. A politician, politician tweets the wrong picture that was meant to be sent directly to his female intern. And of course, there's the inner triumph of seeing a rival falter. Uh, Miss Smith shares another story, this time when a colleague enjoyed in her misfortune. She said, the other day in the coffee shop, a colleague asked if I'd gotten the promotion I'd gone for. No, I said, and I noticed at the corner of his mouth the barely perceptive twitch of a grin before the tumble of commiserations. Oh, it's bad luck. Oh, it's their loss, these idiots. But I was tempted to ask, did you just smile? But I didn't. Because when he loses out, as he sometimes does, I know I experience a happy twinge too. And suppose that if I were to uh, survey everybody in this room at this, this morning and ask you to raise your hand if you have never, ever experienced some sort of delight in the misfortune of others, that you're honest enough to realize that probably no hands would go up. But it is this temptation to enjoy the sufferings of others that it's brought into focus in our text this morning. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29 again. We'll finish up this up this morning. Genesis 9, 18 to 29. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in Inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And let's talk about what we, this morning, a thing called Ham's sin, Okay. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, I do want to say this, this point real quick, that there is another lesson here other than the one that we're going to get to. That it's, it's not a deeply profound lesson, but it is a lesson nonetheless that we are all too familiar with. What do we know of Ham? Well, we know that he was a, a believer. Obviously, he survived the worldwide flood. He was considered righteous, for he had received the righteousness of God, imputed to him by his faith. He obviously worshipped God, so there's a sense of love he had for God. Um, Ham belonged to God. This is why God graciously protected Ham from the, the worldwide flood judgment. 
But despite all this, this is a reminder to us that even though there were only eight people alive at the time, that righteous people still sin. We still sin. We make mistakes. And this is a lesson I think that we all need to be reminded of from time to time. But the question of the morning is, what was Ham's sin? I mean, he simply saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his brothers. But the key to understanding Ham's sin is in the word saw. In this context, the word implies that he gazed with some delight. Now, the context does not suggest he gazed with delight in a sexual sense, but rather that he gazed in delight of another human struggle. Now, let me share a personal story as to when my eyes were opened to this ugly sin. While I was serving on the staff of, of Campus Crusade for Christ at Bowling Green State University years ago, uh, some of our students got involved with, uh, it's called Cornerstone Church of Maumee, Ohio, M-A-U-M-E-E. Now, the pastor at the time, his name was Michael Pitts, and some of our staff were very concerned about our students being associated with this church because of its charismatic leanings, and that didn't bother me. But what bothered me, along with the other staff, was the fact that they, they sort of preached a prosperity gospel. Um, and the pastor was known for his wealthy lifestyle, his big house, the luxury car he drove around. Now, in the course of time, it became public, and this is by way of the local news. This was all over the local news up in the Toledo, Ohio area. Um, that Michael Pitts was accused of exposing himself in public. There was this pastor, this growing church, and he was accused of exposing himself in public. Now, as we were talking about this as a staff team, I remember very distinctly being, being privately appalled at our campus director's response to this news. He was smiling. He was smiling. So here was a brother in Christ, a pastor, a fellow laborer who had stumbled. And here's our campus director, another brother in Christ, clearly taking delight in this brother's weakness. And of course, immediately, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 popped into my mind. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It does not delight, as some versions say, in evil. And this was clearly what this campus director was doing. At that moment, I also knew our campus director because that response, this man was not filled with the Spirit. Because if he was filled with the Spirit, he'd be full of love. And the response would have been different. Because what does love do when faced with sin of others? Love covers a multitude of sins. There was something wrong in Pastor Michael Pitts that manifests itself in public indecent exposure. And there was something wrong in this campus director that manifests itself in the delight of seeing another brother in Christ struggle publicly. Either way, both men had something wrong inside them in their hearts that led to sin. 
In the same way, there was something wrong in Ham that led him to delight in his father's shame. He's showing an attitude of a rebellious son. And, so, and to add further insult to injury, Ham does not cover his father's sin, which is what love does, but he exposes it. What does love do? It covers sin. Because love always protects, right? What does animosity do? It publicly exposes its victim to ridicule because it seeks to hurt. And this is evident by Ham's next step is that he wants to tell his two brothers. So not only is he delighting in his father's shame, now he's committing the ugly sin of ridicule. He wanted his brothers to join in the ridicule of their father. For whatever reason, Ham had a level of animosity or resentment for his father. In short, even though it had not been recorded, Ham was breaking the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And keep in mind, this is not a, a young boy that is making this mistake for the first time. Ham is over 100 years old by now. And so as we're about to find out, because Ham delighted in his father's shame, God brought shame into his family. Now, let's talk about his two brothers, Shem and Jephthah's righteousness. Look at verse 23. But Shem and Jephthah took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. As you know, I like watching movies, and it's very common in movies, and you see it all the time, really. When someone accidentally walks in on a naked person, or someone accidentally walks in while another person is undressing, they almost immediately like, turn away, turn their face and their eyes and turn away. It's considered inappropriate to stare at that person, because there exists just a natural and sacred barrier that is not meant to be broken. Now, chapter 20 of Exodus contains the Ten Commandments. But did you know that the last verse in this chapter, it addresses maintaining the sacred barrier of nakedness? Did you know that? When the people go to worship, they were to dress appropriately, lest they expose their nakedness. Exodus 20, 26 says this, And you shall not go up by the steps to my altar to worship, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. The barrier of nakedness is meant to be sacred and never crossed, other than with a married couple. David and Bathsheba broke that barrier. Remember that story? It's found in 2 Samuel 11. I just want to highlight, you don't need to go there, verses 2 and 3. It says this, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, they saw from the roof of a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, since David was on a roof that was much higher, at a higher height, he could easily see into homes nearby. And Bathsheba, Bathsheba was, for her part, was probably bathing in an enclosed garden. So this was not a lack of discretion on her part. David saw her nakedness, and he didn't turn away after that first look. One look led to a longer stare, which led to a lustful thought, and then to an action, an inquiry, 
which eventually led to sexual morality and ultimately the death of Bathsheba's husband and the child that they conceived out of wedlock. Well, why? But in all that happened, they crossed over the natural and sacred barriers of nakedness. Now, similarly, by his behavior, Ham just desecrated this barrier. But Shem and Japheth do not cross that barrier. See, they held it sacred. And the contrast and response between Ham and his two brothers is distinct. They had an appropriate sense of shame. They would find no pleasure in their father's indiscretion. They would not join Ham in his disrespect. This shows what kind of sons they were. This is a strong reminder to us, folks, of the boundaries that honor God. There's a reason why women are to dress modestly. They have said in college as I was growing up, ladies save the skin for the beach. There's a reason why men should not look twice at a woman, because it can lead to lust and other sins. Shem and Japheth demonstrated the heart of God that's defined in Habakkuk 1.13. It says, you are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look at wickedness. In a world, and this is our world, folks, that is designed to remove shame and normalize lust, here we find a refreshing example of a behavior that honors God. And if you honor God, he will honor you. And that's exactly what happens next, and it's really quite fascinating. Look at verse 24 through 27. When Noah woke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Verse 25, so he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, we don't know how Noah discovered what Ham had done to him. The author is silent on the how. Instead, the author wants us to know the consequence. And once again, we're introduced to blessings and curses. Of course, the first blessings and curses were spoken in the Garden of Eden. Here we're introduced to the first curse of the second earth. Remember that first earth wiped out in the flood? God reshaped that planet that we, are, that we now live on. And here is the second earth, I call it. And there's a reality of life that's been instituted from the very beginning, which is that we live our life either under blessings or curses. It's been that way from the very beginning. For those who honor God, there will be blessing. For those who don't, there will be cursing. This is true for Israel, as laid out in Deuteronomy 27 in the form of patterns of life that bring curses. In Deuteronomy 28, in the form of patterns of life that bring blessings. These are the two extremes of life, blessing and cursed, either among the blessed or among the cursed. And verse 25 reminds us, in the first and only words of no record for us, this incident revealed the heart attitudes of his sons to him, and he responded with a curse on the one hand and a blessing on the other. And one thing stands out in Noah's words is that he curses Canaan. Now why? He was simply the fourth son of Ham. He didn't sin. You notice that? 
He didn't sin, but his father Ham did. How are we to understand this? I believe the reason is this, that God or that Noah could not curse Ham because Ham was granted the grace of God. He was declared righteous by God. He was a child of God. But why did Noah curse Ham's other sons, Cush, Egypt, and Put? Noah did not curse these other sons, which leads me to believe they too had been declared righteous by God. They were believers. The only person that God will curse is somebody who rejects him. And from what we know about the descendants of Canaan from last week's sermon, they're such a vile and wicked people, it is most likely that Canaan was the first unbeliever of Ham's four sons. Just so you know, what we read here about Noah's words, it's not a guess and it's not a prediction. It's a prophetic word from God. God revealed to Noah the future detailing Cain's unbelief, his unbelieving line or progeny, and the inevitable wickedness that defined the Canaanites. Well, Let's take a moment and look at the curse given to Canaan and his descendants. As a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. What do you think that means? His descendants are simply going to be his brother's slaves. First of all, it says they will be slaves to the family of Shem. You see that? Now, here's where you need to write some stuff down. Who are the descendants of Shem? Who is the family of Shem? Out of Shem, or the family of Shem, comes Abraham. And from Abraham comes what? The Jews. So I put up for you, just to give you a picture here, of a map of Canaan during the time of Abraham and Lot. And you can see here that this is the Canaanites and Hittites, Hivites, Amorites. These are all offspring of Canaan. You see how far they go. This over here would be modern-day Israel. You see Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and so on and so forth. And of course, right here, you can see Sodom and Gomorrah. It's all Canaanite territory, all right? That's a, a map during the time of Abraham and Lot. But you see it, in it, you see Sodom and Gomorrah. That's kind of the whole area were the people who the descendants of Canaan went to. Now, what is interesting about the lifestyle of these descendants of the Canaanites and the Amorites and so on is that, do you know what they were characterized by, what they were known for? Nakedness. Nakedness. This is why nakedness is mentioned 24 times in Leviticus chapter 18. Somehow the experience of nakedness that occurred with Ham shows up generations later in this perverted desire for uncovering people's nakedness. But more important, what we see here is God providentially, he put the descendants of Canaan into that particular land, and who was he going to give this land to? The descendants of who? Shem. From Shem came Abraham, and the promise went to Abraham and to his descendants. So God providentially puts the descendants of Canaan into this particular land and then is going to judge that land and its peoples with the coming of Israel. Now, the curse of Canaan is followed by a blessing for Shem and Japheth. 
Verse 26, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Notice that the blessing is pronounced on the Lord. Do you notice that? If you bless the Lord, who is the God of Shem, and Shem follows the blessed Lord, then Shem himself and his descendants will be blessed, and Canaan will be his descendants and his servants. From Shem, we get the word Semite, by the way, and eventually comes Abraham and the Israelites, who will take the land given to Abraham in a promise, and they will put the Canaanites in subjection under them. Thus, Canaan shall be a servant of Shem. It also says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. This is interesting because of the name that the word Lord, that, that's used there. It's the word Yahweh, or the word Jehovah. So who is Yahweh, Jehovah, to the descendants of Shem? Think of Moses, Abraham, Moses, all of that. Right here with these eight people on the earth, God is saying, I am choosing Shem to be their God. I'm choosing Israelites in essence. This is a prophetic word. God uses his personal covenant name. He's already linking God's personal covenant name and blessings with Shem and his offspring, the Israelites. He doesn't say, blessed be the Lord, the God of Japheth, does he? No. He's the God of Shem. Now, if you go to chapter 10, verse 22, just, you don't need to go there, but it says, To Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Jepheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arpaxad, Lud, and Aram. So here we find the children of Shem, and the first of them is named is Elam, E-L-A-M. Well, who was Elam? Well, turn to Genesis 14, since we're there. Genesis 14, I'll give you an answer. By the way, to Shem also, it says, the father of all the children of Eber. You know what the word Eber means? Hebrew. Hebrew. Genesis 14, okay, verses 1 through 5. Actually, 1 through 4. It says, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Ketolomir, king of Elam. See that? Verse 2, these kings made war with Barak, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, king of Zebulun, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served who? Kelamor. But in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Kelamor is the king of what kingdom? Elam. Elam is a descendant of who? Shem. So Elam built a kingdom, and one of his descendants was King Kedalabor. And we discover here that the kings of the Canaanites served who? King Kedalabor of Elam, who was the descendant of Shem. So I want you to see that history shows us 
almost immediately, the children of Canaan served the children of Shem, just like God prophesied through Noah. In fact, it stayed that way until the Jewish people took their land. Now, God's prophetic word spoken through Noah came true, not just with Shem, but through Jepheth. Look at verse 27. It says, May God enlarge Jepheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Remember, Jepheth also did the right thing, covered his father's nakedness, and God said he's going to be enlarged. Well, the descendants of Jepheth, by the way, were the Indo-European nations. What does that mean? Well, they're the peoples and the groups of peoples to the north, west, and the east. They were colonizers of the world, eventually colonizing into North America. All of it stems from, goes back to one man, Jepheth who God said he would enlarge. You see that? It says that he will dwell in the tents of Shem. That means that he'll have peaceful relationships with the descendants of Shem, called the Semites. It's amazing. We are here today, in many ways, because of this obedient act of two men. Now think about it, in all seriousness. It's a private sin, really, of delighting in your heart in the misfortunes of of someone else and then wanting to openly and publicly ridicule them. This was not murder that they committed. This was was not a, 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 a sexual sin. You tend to rate sins and so on. This was nothing like that. Noah got drunk in his tent and exposed himself. His son, who obviously was offended for something that Noah had done to him, delighted in his father's shame and wanted to publicly ridicule him. That led to this curse on Canaan and, of course, what happened to the Canaanites. God at Israel will do what? Genocide. Kill them all. And to the two that obeyed, the descendants of Shem, the Israelites, they're still around. And through Jepheth, the world basically was populated. And it's traced back to this particular sin. So if you think sin doesn't have consequences, think again, right? I think one of the lessons of this of Genesis chapter 9 is that there is no such thing as a minor sin. I believe that, that Noah and his wife and Shem, Ham, and Jebeth and their wives, there have been other sins that they, God could have chosen. He just chose this particular incident to teach us a lesson. Let's close with, with the death of Noah. Verse 28, Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. (laughs) I just thought of this in preparing this. Whoever says a life lived in honor of God was boring. Let me give you some perspective on Noah's life. 
He was born 69 years after Enoch walked with God right into heaven. Remember Enoch? He walked with God and was no more. He was born 57 years after Adam died. Think about that. He was a son, a husband of one wife that we know of, a father of three boys, grandfather to countless grandchildren. He was a prophet, a preacher, a priest, a king, a shipbuilder, a farmer, a drunk, a man of faith, a man of great patience, very obedient. He was an eyewitness to unfathomable corruption and depravity in that first society. He survived a worldwide flood. He witnessed two Earths, the tropical environment of the near paradise of the first Earth and the harsher environment of the rugged, mountainous second Earth that we now live on. And if that's not enough for you, ready for this? He lived through the Tower of Babel. He lived through the Tower of Babel, and quite possibly up to the time of Abraham. So the whole of human history at this point in history is spanned by four people, Adam, Enoch, Methuselah, and Noah. And this is only 2,000 years after creation, and it's spanned by four lives. And I would say that Noah lived a full life, wouldn't you? But the inevitable came, and this is one of the lessons that we have to remember. Noah died. Because even for a believer, the wages of sin is still a physical death. And that's how this chapter ends. Another reminder of death. But what we see in this passage is a tremendous story of the sovereignty of God. How he can use even minor sins and do great things even through, the, through that. And so I just, just a reminder for us this week, just praise God for his sovereignty. Last week I told you, just think about that there are no minor sins, there are no trivial sins. Well, this week, even God can work through that in his sovereignty and bring about good. Amen? Let's pray before we close the song this morning. Lord, it is a, a humbling and sombering story to read. And yet it is also just an incredible testimony to your, your sovereignty, to your power, to your wisdom, to your ability to bring about your will. Yes, Lord, it's a reminder that there is no minor sin. It is a reminder for us to do our utmost to live holy, pleasing lives. But Lord, we want to sit here, we want to stand this morning, and we want to worship you as we close. And may you as in all things be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please stand with me, we'll close with a song.